Hi everyone, this is Raoul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Keith Grossman, fantastic to see you on Real Vision. How the devil are you? I'm good. How are you, my friend? Uh, you know, I can't complain. As we just talked about off camera, I'm in the Caribbean. What can I complain about? And, I mean, the easiest job in the world has to be a weatherman. Where are you down? Where are you <laughs> Today's going to be warm and sunny. <laughs> um, Keith, before we start, just uh, tell people what you do now. And then I want to go back in time and get a bit of your journey here. Sure. So um, my name's Keith Grossman. I'm the president of Time. Uh, you know, I joined Time about three years ago. Um, and really, you know, it was to take this storied brand that just turned 99 a few a few weeks ago um, and make sure that it evolves for the next 100 years. And, you know, it had just been brought under new ownership by Mark and Lynn Benioff, um, Mark being the CEO of Salesforce and Lynn, his wife. And, you know, they were concerned. They just were concerned about, you know, the state of journalism, the state of the media industry, um, and how can we make sure that a brand like Time that's been relatively objective and centrist, you know, can uh, survive and evolve. And, you know, over that time, uh, you know, we've we've been sort of breathing life into it and evolving it and, and resourcing it and, you know, building different extensions off the brand. And, you know, uh, my responsibility is evolving into, you know, focusing primarily on Web3 development, which has been a relatively new expansion. We're almost a year in next week into Web3, which in Web3 years, as you know, is is essentially like 100 years, right? Uh, and uh, prior to time, and this will now make sense, is uh, I was at Bloomberg for five years, where I rose to be the global chief revenue officer. And prior to that, I spent most of my time at Condé Nast for 12 years, where I worked on... Um, Wired and Ars Technica, and briefly on the launch of Portfolio as a seller. And then, you know, um, ultimately, the common thread throughout all of my jobs have been um, changing with trends. And so, like with Wired, we took it from, you know, a primarily print revenue brand to a primarily digital revenue brand. With Wired, we then launched the tablet edition that Steve Jobs held up and said, you know, this is the brand, this is how you need to launch on the tablet. With Ars Technica, um, we looked at sort of the community engagement and realized that we could tap into data to predict if an article would go viral or not, and invented what's called the Ars Accelerator, which won a Project Isaac Award for Project Inventions, uh, Media Inventions, and um, grew the brand 85% in revenue in one year. It was amazing. Uh, and then at Bloomberg, you know, the challenge was, was how do we take this complex matrixed organization and turn it into a focused media company. And ultimately, you know, as we started to do that, uh, we launched, we also launched Quick Take, which is their social mobile video network. We had no, we had no ambitions of taking time into crypto, no ambitions of taking time into Web3. Um, I don't know, like if you've, there's this great philosopher role, um, Mike Tyson, who has this quote that, you know, everyone has a plan until you're punched in the mouth. And I, uh, uh, you know, like we we had our view and where we were going to take it. And, 
you know, 2020 came around and we saw shifts take place that we none of us expected to see as it related to consumer privacy, as it related to uh, online ownership versus online rentership, as it related to communities and, and other sort of core human attributes, as it related to income redistribution. And we realized like, wow, like we could play in this crypto space and this NFT space really well. And the reason at the end of the day is, is it's just a spot that I love personally. And I was able to realize how I could take my personal passion and apply it to my professional so responsibility. Let's talk about that before we get into what you're doing and, <clears throat> and the journey of, of getting everybody across the line at time. What was your journey into crypto? How much prior to it did it start? Or are you relatively new to it? Give, give me that story. So the clean version of that story is I got into crypto in, in 2013, 2014, like around the time that Wired wrote this article. So when I was at Wired, the editors came and said to me and to my partner, actually, uh, Maya Drazen and also Howard Mittman, uh, they said, uh, you're the business side. Um, we want to write an article about this new digital currency called Bitcoin. And uh, uh, we need $4,600 to buy a computer to mine the Bitcoin. And... Picture that, bro, like $4,600 to buy the computer to mine the Bitcoin. So we wrote the check. And the editors of Wired wrote the article about Bitcoin. And that's when I started to invest, you know, initially in crypto. What did you see in it? What did you think? What was the, what was the trigger point for you? Um, <clears throat> I was in college, a government major. And I, uh, the biggest choice I made in my life was, do I go into government or do I go into media? And as a government major, I loved government, uh, you know, theoretically. And uh, and in college, I was interning at Condé Nast. And so like, I loved media. I was just having fun in this industry. And I chose at the end of the day, I had two job offers coming out of college. I chose at the end of the day to go into media. Um, but what I liked about crypto was where it played in my sort of... Um, uh, personal belief system. You know, I liked the inclusivity of crypto. I liked the decentralization of crypto. I liked, you know, I liked that Bitcoin was capped, to be honest, right? Um, uh, and, you know, like I, when I really, really started to um, look at crypto, uh, you know, even more so than, you know, dabbling in it from 2014 beyond personally was, you know, in 2020. And, what led me to it was just watching, you know, you know, the world react to COVID and just a very simple thing taking place, which was, and this is a personal thing, not a, this is not a professional thing, but this is, this is on a personal level, seeing the consistent spending on trying to contain COVID um, with very little successful outcome taking place over a course of a year that could actionably hold it or contain it. And the insistence of government to say that there was no inflation, I just didn't buy. It was something that like, it didn't connect with me. And I couldn't make a rational case out of what I was seeing and what I was hearing and what I believed. And so when I looked at the alternatives in my mind, the alternatives were, wow, uh, like this asset class actually makes a lot of sense to me 
personally as an individual. And this is not investment advice. That was just me personally as an individual. I don't have all my money in crypto, but I have some. And I, and I, I, you know, uh, look at that and I take it very seriously. The second thing was, you know, the world is a very sad place, right? Um, there's a lot of happiness in the world, but there's also a lot of sadness. And when you look at the way in which crypto fluctuates in a first world country like the United States, um, you're used to having a stable currency, right? But there's plenty of countries that don't have a stable currency, where there's plenty of countries where people are fleeing. And if you're fleeing the country, you know, there's two things you need. One is you need cash, you know, um, for your immediate needs, you know, for safety, for water, for food. Um, but you need, is it, I'd rather, you don't need, but I'd rather think that an alternative like crypto is probably a better long-term play if you have to flee and you have to get across a border and then you have to reset your life and reestablish your life somewhere else. It's just, in my mind, as I was watching the news, that that's sort of what, what kept on going through my head. And that was not my media head. That was my media head as an observer, right? But then that was my government mind, you know, and my, my background saying, wow, this this is how I would be playing out all these scenarios if I was to make an investment with my own personal money. And again, not investment advice for anyone else, but how I thought through the scenarios. So there's a big leap from that to thinking, oh, this NFT thing, Yes, this is interesting, <laughs> to then going to Mark Benioff. So give us the journey of NFTs, the light bulb moment for you. Yeah. Or what you first thought was the light bulb moment, because whatever we think it is, it never is, right? Yeah. It always ends up being much more. But give us that whole ridiculous story. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're first, I feel like I'm looking at you and you're like, wow, why did we invite this guy on, right? Like, this is crazy. He's talking about changing his life over him, like immigration. Right now. But, um, uh, no, don't forget, I, most people have a philosophy behind it. Yeah. Um, you know, that is not uncommon. I mean, that's how I yeah. discovered it, was living through the European crisis in 2012 and, and seeing people's money being taken out of banks in Cyprus. You know, it's, it all comes from the same basis of understanding the system is broken. I, so, like, and that's a very funny, interesting thing. So that, that actually leads to a really important thing as to, like, why did, why, what did we see with crypto and, and Web3 and time? Uh, first, I want to give Mark credit where credit is due. Like Mark sent me and Edward Felsenthal, our editor-in-chief, an email that said, um, did you see this? That's all it said. Did you see this? And it was the Nyan Cat sale, right? And uh, I looked at it and it was February of last year. I looked at it and I just like had that light bulb moment. So like everything that that led up to this moment actually like clicked with that one email that he sent. And I all I wrote back was we could do this. And everyone was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, do you understand why a cat with a body of a Pop-Tart farting a rainbow <laughs> just went for $300,000? And and everyone was like, no. And I said, like, just let me run with this for a minute. And so literally a year ago next week, an article came out in Yahoo Finance that Julia LaRoche, who I believe you know, um, wrote. And the article said a few things. It said, uh, this week, we are going to be entering into the NFT space and we are going to be auctioning off three NFTs um, of covers of time. So by September, we will have figured out how to use uh, the token and blockchain to change the relationship with our consumer. Um, and so we did this and everyone thought that, you know, it was a good market. Had, had Mark bought into this? 
ludicrous idea because he kind of suggested, look, this is interesting. You come back and said it's more interesting than you think. He empowered me. You're now pivoting the entire business around it. He empowered me. He empowered me. To, I right. mean, he empowered me, and like, and you know, like, I'm really grateful for that. Right, more than more than people realize is that he never stood in the way and said stop. He never stood and said don't do that. Like, he he let me be creative and sort of just move in it. And nobody knew. Like, I mean, when we put those first covers up, we didn't know if we were going to make fifty bucks or a thousand bucks or ten thousand bucks, and we ended up on you know day one making four hundred and forty thousand dollars and then you know i i uh, found buyers for you know a few other covers and within a week we had made 1.6 million dollars and you have to put yourself in the position of a company where all of a sudden you have this crypto and there's zero float and it solves one thing from a business problem for media right off the bat zero float right so it's that's amazing right you don't even realize like how powerful that is from a media company but the bigger thing that I saw and the reason that I, and by the way, within 28 days, we had the cryptocurrencies up for digital subscriptions of time, right? Uh, and you can get it at time.com slash hodl, which is my bad sense of humor and our CTO's bad sense of humor. But um, uh, the bigger trend was really when we launched timepieces. And, you know, like what I saw with timepieces was at the beginning, the trend and not, not the asset, the community, and what the asset and the community and how they interacted. Um, if 2020 didn't occur and we weren't all stuck and by ourselves, I think that this trend still would have taken place, but over many, many more years. Like what people in 2020 realized and what I realized were two things. One, my digital identity is just as important as my physical identity, right? Uh, and I think people really realized that when they were isolated for a full year right? Wow. Digital identity is really important. As that happened, uh, if you've ever read the book Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, you know, it's about the decline of social circles in, in America from the 50s and 60s. I think what people started to see was that their physical in real life social circles started to diminish and their digital social circles started to emerge. And what Web3 really started to play to was people coming together, communities emerging based on psychographics, not based on demographics or geographics, right? And what really drove that when you drill one layer deeper was a human sort of trait that's common amongst all of us, which is loneliness, right? Like we were all just lonely and we needed people to connect with. And when you then take what the technology offers, which is um, a few advantages, digital asset ownership, right? So now all of a sudden you don't have to pretend something, you could show that you have something, right? So it verifies you and it shifts privacy from the platforms to the consumer for the most part, right? You all of a sudden realize like that's a very powerful evolution that's taking place between online ownership, privacy and community. And when I saw that, I didn't know what the answer was. And I spent seven months in clubhouses and you know spaces just listening to people like JN Silva and Thank UX and Sergito, who I know has been on uh, your, your, your talks before, and just listening to these individuals talk about how they're interacting and thinking about the space from an economic perspective, from a community perspective, from a collaboration perspective, from an evolution perspective. And that was what ultimately bore timepieces. And we didn't get it right at first. Like, I don't think we're perfect either, but like we are 
we're going out and we're just building, building, building in the space because we see that it will allow us to evolve our brand for the next hundred years. So talk me through time pieces, what it is, what the community is, and also the the realization that you can unlock back catalog value. You know, you're bringing new the digital assets onto a balance sheet that didn't exist. So I'd love to hear the whole concept behind what you're doing with time pieces because it's fascinating. Sure. So in September... Uh, first off, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Even just, it's always really wonderful to chat with you all. Like, um, you know how much I admire you. The in September we launched timepieces, and we launched it with, you know, six thousand pieces, right? And the premise was was if you think about time, and you think about like what has made time really powerful, like really stand the test of time. No pun intended. For ninety nine years, it's it's the power of the cover. Right. It's what's inside that red border. And, you know, you could ask anybody what their favorite article of time is. Very few people could tell you that. Like, it's not a knock on the edit. The edit's amazing. Right. Like the edit is is tremendous, but it really is the cover. Right. And when you step one layer deeper and you ask yourself, what is it about the cover? What you realize is, is a tremendous artist at one moment in time on a weekly basis captured the world in a way that had an emotional connection with people. And. You know, as I was sitting through these clubhouse rooms, what I started to realize was uh, there was a simple transition taking place between Web 2 and Web 3. In Web 2, the equation for success, and the credit to this actually goes to Farouk Samad, who tweeted this out, and and he's 100% correct in my mind. Web 2, the equation for success is brand finds a creator who then attracts an audience. So, like, look at the history of time. Like, Time found great artists, Warhol, de Kooning, Chagall, to to create covers who then ultimately attracted readers and audiences to buy those issues of of the magazine. Web 3, the equation's slightly different. It's actually completely different. It's community uplifts a creator who then, a brand's job is to uplift and validate the creator further to validate the community's choice and by doing that, the community validates the brand, right? So it's completely reverse. And when you do that, what you realize is in the past, in Web 2, the brand moves from being the center of everything to the periphery. And the center of everything in Web 3 becomes the creator right now, right? And so for timepieces, when we had that realization about the role that artists and creatives played in our brand success over 100 years, we realized that the number one thing we had to build our entry point around is this creative class. And what we started to see was a few things. One was um, there were individuals like Jay and Silva and Thank You X that continuously uplifted um, other artists into the space. And the artists were incredibly grateful to the you know, ability of these two individuals to just give a helping hand and help out and to onboard. And so while in the beginning we invited, you know, I think it was uh, 18 or 19 uh, artists to participate, every artist that we invited in, we said, you get one invite. So we're curating you and you then go and curate who you like. So it's sort of like, you know, when you watch those cooking shows and it's like, this is a chef's kitchen. Right. Like we had the time curations, but then like the artists know the better artists, too. So like the then had the artists curators, but we wouldn't distinguish between them. 
but started to open up our sort of um, periphery to who we were able to engage with. Um, the second thing that we started to realize within this space was uh, the economic structure provided by smart contracts recalibrates sort of what the relationship can be between creative and brand, right? So in Web2, the creative would get a one-time payment from the brand for $5,000 or $2,000 or $100. It doesn't make a difference. And then the brand owned their work, and then the creative never, ever got paid ever again. But with the advent of a smart contract, the brand and the creative can actually have a relationship where they're partners, they're genuine partners, and they root for each other on everything. And so we spoke internally, and it was a really important role, important position for me and for Maya um, Drazen and Barack Krish, who's our CTO, Maya's our chief brand officer, that the creative split the revenues on the primary and the secondary sales evenly based on their work. So the way that we set up the economics of timepieces was the first 1% of the primary and the secondary sale goes to charity. And the remaining 99% is then split with the artists on their work. And so now all of a sudden the artists are not creatives to time and time's not the vendor to the artists, but we're one big time family. And so what we did was we dropped these tokens and the drop was its own thing. Like we learned a lot in the drop and like we made a lot of mistakes and we've, you know, evolved a lot since the drop and fixed a lot and built a lot of IT and tech and IP, you know, from our learnings. Um, but what we started to realize was we can enter into the Web3 space, not as a greed based community, but as a values based community. And there were a few of them, like the cool cats existed as a values based community, right? And if we did that and we took the values of time and we applied it to Web3 and we took the resources of time and applied it to Web3, then we could actually create a Web3 experience. We could continue to evolve Web2 and we could develop what I'm calling like a Web2.5 experience. And in Web2.5, it's sort of, I could take the resources of Web2 and bring them into Web3. I could take the insights from Web3 and bring them to Web2. I can take anyone who owns a timepiece, and right now there's 12,000 people who own timepieces, and I could say, connect your digital wallet to time.com and access time.com for free. We'll, we'll remove the paywall, and you don't have to give any information. And think about that. In a world where GDPR and CCPA and third-party cookies are going away from media companies, like media companies are going to become increasingly vulnerable as privacy shifts to the consumer. Now, with this option of saying to a community member, like your token, your NFT actually gives you access into our platform, I can have a great relationship with that consumer. I could still affix Google Analytics to what they're reading. And because the Ethereum blockchain is public, I can understand what they own, but they don't have to tell me who they are, right? That doesn't matter. And everything that we thought we needed to know in the media space is not really true anymore, right? Like it's like knowing what someone reads and what someone owns is probably a far better predictor than knowing that I live in New York City on the Upper West Side, right? And so as I started to look at that, and by the way, 5,000 of the 12,000 people have connected their wallets to time, right? So like it's a really interesting indicator that it, it does work. What I also realized was that the equation for the consumer is shifting with Web3. And what the equation for the consumer in Web2 was, was um, brand or platform um, uh, you know, uh, mind the consumer for information, and that was the value. In Web3, 
you have to turn it around and say, um, to get your information, I need to provide you as the consumer, as the brand or the platform with value, right? And a good example of this is we offered the Timepiece community five spots for invitations to the Time Person of the Year. And, you know, we held a whole contest, but every person who attended had to dox themselves and every person who attended had to take a PCR test, right? And I could have asked for passport numbers and people would have given it. And thousands of people within the Timepiece community that's on Discord um, and within the Twitter handle at Timepieces um, entered into the contest, all realizing that they'd have to give their identity. But what that said to me was they're willing to, people are willing to give their identity if they perceive the value that they're going to get in exchange for it. Yeah, if and they're rewarded for it, of course. And so that's, so that's where we've been building with Timepieces is we've been building the community on Discord. We've been looking at how it connects into the larger time brand. We've been looking at how we could take content and the relationships with the larger time brand and bring it into the Discord and vice versa. And um, and how do we just continue to you know add value to the community and to those members? So let's flip it around. What does it mean to a community member? So you play the role of of somebody who's a you know is a long term reader of Time Magazine. They identify with the brand. Mm -hmm. What is this doing for them? Sure. From their perspective, uh, what are they getting out of this new relationship? So. Like, let me, I'll step back. And I, I think it's a great question. Um, so any person's heard me say this infinite times in our weekly time halls, right? Like, as you can see, we're really dorky. And we really are punny wherever we can, right? And so we have these weekly time halls and we think it's really important that we operate it very transparently and we give updates as to what we're doing, where we're going, what we're, what, what deals we're striking and, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And, um, and people hear me talk about the values of time uh, consistently, and they and they hear me talk about the values of the time peace community consistently, and and those values are we want to create a space within Discord, within the you know uh, online for people where it's inherently optimistic and positive and constructive. Um, we want to enable people to provide constructive feedback, right, so that they're participatory, but that they're not jerks, right, um, and. Uh, that we try to reinforce what we call and what Barack Krish, our CTO, has said, and I think is really eloquent in my address, and uh, a hashtag give first mentality. And so we reward behavior like that. The second, so right off the bat, it's what's the ecosystem that you'd enter into that we are trying to consistently reinforce. And so that's the values of time and timepieces. So that's your societal set of rules, essentially. Those are, those are the rules by which we we want to we wanna make sure that we we exist as a community. The second is, is, you know, we have a lot of relationships and a lot of access. So like a good example is, is, you know, uh, Andrew Chow, who's an amazing writer for us, will come in and interview, uh, you know, some of the people that he has access to just for timepiece holders, right? And so we create sort of a funnel where if you are part of the community, you have access to a large group. If you are an owner, right, you have access to a different group and we're going to continue to stratify it. You know, a good example is, is when, you know, Ethereum had its major correction to 2300, right? And people were really freaking out. Um, and you could see it on Twitter. You know, I called up Deepak Chopra and I asked him like, what are you doing in two hours? Do you have an hour that you could just 
talk to the community about mental wellness and, you know, do a meditation. And, you know, he said, no problem. And I think that our ability is time to be able to take a connection like that and bring it to the community. And by the way, 600 people showed up with one hour notice, two hours notice, right? Our ability to add, to provide that to somebody, I think is memorable. And I think that that adds value. And then you start to say, well, we also have access to these in real life events. And if you're part of the community and you own a timepiece, you can enter into attend an in real life event. So we had, yes, the person of the year, that was one thing. But last week in LA, we did a time, uh, you know, women of the year, uh, events and you know, a uh, timepiece community member actually, you know, won a spot at a very small dinner to be able to attend. Um, the final thing is, is uh, you know, you just continuously get to engage with artists, and I think that you know, that's a really important aspect of the timepiece community that I love. And we have weekly programming with just artists, uh, you know, in our community over and over and over again. And then the final thing is, is you could use your timepiece to access our site for free, right? And so in every instance where I can continue to add what I would say is utility or value to being a community member, I'm going to, right? Because ultimately the people who fail in this space are what I would say are greed-based communities, right? And there are two real communities that have emerged in Web3 is values-based communities and greed-based communities. Greed-based communities can survive for a short period of time, but they don't survive for a long period of time because nobody has a collective self-interest, right? Like uh, nobody has a collective identity. A values-based community, I think, is more akin to what Web3 is about, right? Web3 is more of a stakeholder capitalism environment than it is a 1972-esque Milton Friedman environment, right? Now, the latter exists, but it does disappear very quickly. And that's how people make a lot of money and lose a lot of money, right? Um, the former is more like owning a treasury bond, right? Like it's a slower investment over time and I'm not calling it investment or not, but it's it's a it's a slower, more steady growth. But you know what I could guarantee people is, is that in one year's time, I'm willing to bet the timepieces is still around, right? And I'm willing to bet there are other communities that are based on values are still around too. But the strength of, of communities that will survive long-term in Web3 are those that have the strongest community ties and identities. How are you trying to operate the other side of the network effect? Because right now, time seems like it's in the middle still of the equation, right? It's a facilitator. How do you get the community to talk to the community and create the network effects of who the hell are those people as part of this? Because they've got to be like-minded. They're in a community. How do you ignite that side of the equation? Because that's when real network effects and magic happens, right? The network becomes very valuable if all of these people start helping each other out. Totally. And, and, and you know, it's, really inter- it's, it's, it's a really interesting question, and I didn't know how it would play out. Um, I'm actually also learning every day, right? Like, I learned from, you know, there's something fascinating about going from being in a room with some of your colleagues, thinking you've made the best possible decision based on the information that you know, and executing that decision versus making a decision and being told you're wrong by arbitrary community member XYZ in some location of the world, and then having 85 community members pile on explaining why you're wrong very rationally in suggestions, right? And then realizing, wow, you know that Bill Joy expression of like the smartest person 
is never in the room to solve that problem. Like we might actually have the smartest people in the room and like for the first time ever, uh, we should start listening to them. And the amount of times that we've made decisions that the community has come back to us and said, you should really think about it this way has been, inf- I can't even count on my hand. Like it's, it's every day. Right. And it's really interesting. Um, but the way that it started to evolve was, I mean, at every time we do a drop or every time we make a big announcement, um, you know, and we do, we have four areas where we're looking to operationalize this around. And like one of them is what I'm calling blockchain to the big screen. And this is, you know, I saw that from Doug at Toy Boogers when we structured a deal with him uh, to turn Toy Boogers into a television show through Time Studios and Robotos through a television show or The Littles through a television show or, you know, Smilesburst through a television show. Every time we do something big, more people enter into the timepiece community, right? And as more people enter into the timepiece community, we've seen the Discord channel grow from 2,000 to 4,000 to 6,000 to 9,000 to now, I think it's close to 20,000, right? Every time we start to see big influxes of people, it's amazing what we start to see, which is the new group comes in and the initial reaction of a large percentage of the new group is um, greed, not values. And then they'll make a comment and then ultimately the values-based part of the community wins over the greed part of the community because they know that the sort of central nervous center of the community stands by them always, right? By the values will create value over time. Um, an example I'll give of this is we did a drop called Slices of Time, and we did this three weeks ago. And after the drop, we had you know sold ten thousand one hundred and forty eight you know NFTs, and close to nine thousand new people entered into our Discord, and it was amazing at first. But then this awful war took place and started to happen. And instead of promoting slices of time from a marketing perspective, uh, we made the decision to do a drop um, called Artists for Peace. And we went to all the timepiece artists and we asked them to donate a piece, a one of one. And time and the artists waived all of the royalties. So nobody made money. OpenSea waived all the royalties. And we raised close to $400,000 in 48 hours, right? And we donated to humanitarian relief efforts in Ukraine. There were members in the community that were complaining, why did you stop promoting Slices of Time? I'm a, I bought Slices of Time, and now you're doing this other drop to help people. And I went in and I said to them, I said, this is our values. And by the way, like, while we're in Web3, we're also in real life, and our values will always put human life above marketing a drop. And so if you don't agree with the decision that we made, please sell your piece because our values are misaligned, right? And what was really interesting was the general response of the community was very positive. We did lose about a thousand people who left, and it's fine. Like, it doesn't make a difference to me. Like, I'd rather, we're not playing a 90 second game, we're playing a 90 year game here. Um, but I think that what you see is holistically, you line people up around the values, but when you get to 20,000, the network effect actually dissipates, it doesn't strengthen. Where the network effect has strengthened the most is in the sub communities, 
right? When you get to smaller groups. You sub-segment people people into more like-minded interests. Yes. So you go values and then under it, like-minded interests. And once you get into that and you go into something like the photo community or the illustrators community or the painters community or, you know, the tech community in timepieces, that's where you're seeing the strongest connections and bonds. And are people doing in real life stuff as well? Are they start Because we've got it with our NFT community. We've got about 5,000 people in it. And suddenly, before you know it, they all list around the world where they are. They're all hosting dinners and drinks and, you know, people are networking. It's amazing to see. I mean, it's taking place. Uh, I, we haven't really pushed it that much because we've always been, we've been so, we're still, I'm still sort of like COVID paranoid a little bit, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> right. So like, I don't really push it that much in the, uh, but but we are seeing people gather. And I will say that there is something to be said, you know, in real life hugs are better than metaverse hugs, no matter what anyone wants to say. Right. And, you know, getting to meet people in real life. And like I give a good example of I was just in Vegas for Times Dealer of the Year. But John Knopf, you know, is an artist and a dear friend of mine lives in Vegas. And, you know, I spent for the three days I was in Vegas, I spent three days with him. Right. Like I like it was it was just and it was so great. Like we've only known each other for a year, right? Maybe less than a year, but I spent so much time with him through timepieces and through Twitter spaces and through the community that I just wanted to spend as much in real lifetime with him as I could when I was there. Keith, fantastic conversation. We could talk for hours. Always um, a pleasure, my friend. Thoroughly enjoyed it. There's so much in this interview with Keith. I mean, he's a great thinker. What surprised me is what a pioneer he was. With a 100-year-old brand, he suddenly takes the risks, along with Mark Benioff agreeing it, to completely retool it and start pivoting around community and Web3. It's an extraordinary thing. But that's not the extraordinary part. The extraordinary part was opening Keith's mind up to where this is all going, what this all means, and how society itself is changing. The implications of all of this are something that I've talked a lot about. This is not just about a system of money or the internet of value. It's an entirely different societal construct. And we can't even begin to understand the full ramifications of that on how we live our lives, the society we live in, the businesses we operate. Hi, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, just about everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital asset video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 220,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, please visit www.realvisioncrypto.com. That's www.realvisioncrypto.com.